Welcome to Day by Day, the verse-by-verse Bible teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel in Elk Grove Village, Illinois. We're glad you've joined us and we look forward to spending time again in the Word of God together. We also invite you to stay tuned at the end of today's broadcast for information on additional studies and resources from Day by Day. Thanks again for being with us. The doctrine of the bodily incarnation of Christ is necessary on a number of levels, and as we've seen, the Bible speaks to this clearly. Well, picking up in Colossians chapter 1, verse 21, Pastor Phil will again explore this idea today. Let's listen. Now, what does Paul say to do in Romans 12, verse 2? He said, don't be conformed any longer into this world's way of thinking, but be transformed by the what? Renewing of your mind. That's why it's so important to get your mind in the Word of God. Because if you saturate your mind with God's Word, with His way of thinking, it begins to reprogram you and you begin to live different, a different life for the Lord. Very important. But he said in verse 21, And you, who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled, verse 22, in the body of his flesh through death. It was not by his life, but by his death and ultimately his resurrection that Jesus reconciled us and secured our salvation. The expression the body of his flesh simply means, and this book is loaded with doctrine. I mean, even the little statements you got to look at. The expression, the body of his flesh, simply means that the Lord Jesus Christ affected reconciliation by dying on the cross. And listen, a real human flesh and bone body, not as a spirit being as the Gnostics claimed him to be. He was crucified a man. And a man rose from the dead bodily the third day after he was crucified. And I say that because, of course, all of us say yes, amen. That's obvious. It's one of the bedrock doctrines of the Christian faith. That's true. But Job's witnesses say no. He resurrected a spirit, which means the body was still in the tomb. Well, was the body still in the tomb? When John looked in there, he saw the wrappings, right? And it's kind of unusual, the scene that John saw, the Greek is a little clumsy if you read John's gospel, but he said he saw the, the windings lying by themselves and the turban that was on his head lying by itself. What is John saying? It was like an empty cocoon. The windings that had wound Jesus' body and head as his body, glorified body lifted right up out of the windings, the cloth windings, they dropped limp, still maintaining the shape. But they were empty because he rose from the dead bodily, but with a glorified body that had properties that we don't even understand. He walked through walls. He was able to fly, okay? The disciples thought he was a ghost the first time they saw him. What did he say? Touch me. Does the ghost have what? Flesh and what? Flesh and bone, not flesh and blood. He was no longer a blood-drive person. He was now a spirit-drive person. In other words, a whole different makeup. We're blood drive individuals because these bodies were made for the earth. Someday we're going to be spirit drive beings. And yet we'll still have bodies. He said, touch me. Does the spirit have flesh and bone? As you see, I have. I'm not a ghost. I'm real. Colossians 
1 verse 22, in the body of his flesh through death, to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. Jesus did all this, that when we put our faith in him, he could present us someday to who? The Father. Holy, blameless, and above reproach in his sight. These folks are positional truths. They're not practical truths. They are positional truths. What do I mean? Well, in Christ we are holy. The word is hagias. It means to be taken from the world, separated from the world to become God's special treasure people, right? But the idea is that we've been taken from the world. We still live in the world, but positionally, spiritually, we've been taken out of the world system. And now we belong to God. And the word holy was used of um, implements in the temple, like the forks, the shovels, uh, the knives, the pans, and things that were used in the worship of God in the temple. They were called what? They were called holy to God. Why? Because they were only used for one purpose, and that was the worship of God. We are holy, and we are only to be used for one purpose, and that is to give God glory. But that's practical holiness. I'm talking about positional holiness now, right? Practically, we all blow, we don't always act so holy, do we? But positionally, in Christ, we are always holy in God's eyes. We have been separated from the world. And that's permanent, by the way. Once God takes us out of the world and makes us his own special possession, he never gives us up. We belong to him for eternity. He's holding on to us. Sometimes we like to pull away from him, right? Get back into the world, but what he holds on tight to us. In fact, John 10, the Father's got you in his hands. I've got you in my hands. Can anyone pluck you from either of our hands? We are his forever. We're holy. We belong to him. We're also blameless. This is a, a word that in the Septuagint, which was the Greek translation of the Hebrew, about 270 B.C., this word was used to speak of the uh, sacrificial animals that were offered to God, how, they, the, how that they were without blemish. They were without fault, right? Once we give our hearts to Christ, he makes us sinless, blameless. How could he make us blameless? Look at all the sin we've committed. It's because Jesus paid for all those sins at his cross. And he wrote, paid in full at the bottom of our ledger, once we gave our heart to him. Therefore, we're blameless. We can't be hauled into court and stand trial for crimes that he's already paid for. And this then means we're beyond reproach, which means Satan can accuse us all he wants. He's the accuser of the brethren, but none of those charges stick because our sins have been paid through the blood of Christ. And therefore, Satan can really not accuse us of anything that's going to stick because we are now above reproach. Now, when did this perfection take place? Inwardly? Spiritually? Well, that happened the moment we received Christ as our Lord and Savior, right? When is it going to happen outwardly? When are we going to be made perfect outwardly even as we are inwardly now through Christ? At the rapture. When the rapture happens, we're going to be glorified. And at that point, this body of death is going to be replaced with a glorified body and I'm going to be made like him because I'm going to see him as he is. Between those two events, between the time you were saved and the time you are glorified is the process of sanctification. And that is an ongoing thing, right? Salvation is either you are or you're not. You're not becoming saved, all right? 
You're either saved or you're not saved. You're either going to heaven or you're not going to heaven. But once you're saved, the process of sanctification begins. That's a lifelong process where more and more we are being conformed into Christ's image. Again, I like Hebrews 10, 14, which brings the positional and the practical side by side. For by one offering, speaking of Jesus, he has perfected forever. That's positional truth. Those who are what? Being sanctified. That is practical truth right there. Positionally, I have been perfected forever. Practically, I am in the process of being sanctified. But Paul is talking practically, or excuse me, positionally here in verse 22 of Colossians 1. And it goes along with what Jude said in verse 24, because there's only one chapter in Jude. Listen to what Jude said. Verse 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, the, the Greek is falling. And I, I think that Jude probably has in mind falling out of salvation and being lost. Now to him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you what? Faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. Who does that? Do I do that? Is it up to me? I mean, is it up to me to work real hard to stay saved? Who's going to keep me faultless and blameless? Who's going to present me to the Father someday? Jesus. It's all Jesus, right? It's all Jesus. He does it all. He saves me. He hangs on to me. He sanctifies me. He glorifies me. Now, you read verse 23 and you go, wait, oh, wait a minute, though. Verse 23, if indeed you continue in the faith, uh-oh, grounded and steadfast and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, which of which I, Paul, became a minister. What's all this if stuff? All right? Wait a minute. You're talking to me. Jesus has got me. He's, I'm eternally secure. And then you're talking about if? I mean, if indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel? That doesn't sound so reassuring. And when I first got saved, folks, I'd read passages like that. I'd become terrified. Because you read that and you go, uh-oh, this is all dependent on me to stay faithful. And a lot of groups teach that. Once you get saved, it's up to you to stay saved. All right? You blow it. If you're not faithful, you're going to lose your salvation. God will cast you out. I don't know. My Bible says I will never leave you, nor what? Forsake you. All those who come to me, I will by no means cast out. And the Holy Spirit will abide with you how long? Until you blow it? Forever. So what's he saying here? Well, in the Greek, this isn't a conditional statement, making our salvation, salvation contingent upon our faithfulness in continuing in the faith. The word if carries with it the idea of, and I'm quoting now, Kenneth Wiest, Greek scholar, who said, the if carries with it the idea of assuming that you continue in the faith. Or in other words, what Paul is saying here is that continuing in the faith, listen, continuing in the faith isn't a condition for staying saved. It is a characteristic of those who are genuinely saved already. This is not Paul saying, look, here's what Jesus did for you. You're in now. You're a child of God. But if you don't stay faithful, you're out. Now, that's what he's saying. He is saying that, look, you will know you're a genuine believer. How? Because no matter how many times you blow it and fall and stumble, you're going to keep getting back up and walking with Jesus. Because continuing in the faith is a mark of genuineness. 
It's a mark of genuine saving faith. How do we know if somebody has got genuine saving faith? We can't see their heart, can we? How do we know if somebody's really a Christian? They what? They continue. Didn't Jesus say there are those that receive their word with great joy, but when times of adversity come, they fall quickly away? Or the cares of this life choke out their faith? What is he saying? He's saying there are people that make a profession of faith, but it's not genuine. Genuine Christians are going to continue. They're going to stumble. They're going to blow it. But they're not going to forsake Jesus. They're not going to forsake the faith. They're going to get up, repent, and get right back going again, walking with the Lord. The word continue in verse 23 is the Greek word meno. And again, the word means, and, and let me back up for a second. As I just said, people who are, have true saving faith, even if they stumble and fall, they're going to keep going on, get, get up and keep walking with the Lord. Proverbs 24, verse 16, A righteous man may fall seven times, but will rise again. We're going to blow it. We're going to stumble and fall. The difference between us and somebody who makes a profession of faith that doesn't really know the Lord, a true Christian gets up, repents, and gets going again. The word continue in verse 23 is minnow. And it's a Greek word that means to persist in, adhere to, stay at or with, abide by, you get the idea. And again, the idea is that those who have genuine saving faith continue in their walk with Christ, proving, listen, that they truly are his disciples. Turn to John chapter 8. Very familiar verse, but as long as we're on this subject, let's look at it. John 8, 31. Then Jesus said to, the, to those Jews who believed in him, if you abide, right? That's the Greek word meno, which means to continue, to remain. If you continue in my word, you are my disciples, what? Indeed, the Greek is aleface, which means truly. You are truly my disciple. What is the criteria for being a genuine disciple? That you what? Continue in the faith, Right? Does that mean you're never going to backslide? Does that mean you're never going to have some doubts at times? It just means you're going to land on your feet, doesn't it? It just means that you may backslide, but you're going to get back with the Lord eventually. You may have some doubts, but as you study the Word, those doubts are going to be alleviated. And conversely, what is the mark of those who are not genuine disciples? They what? They don't remain. They don't continue. Turn to 1 John 2. This is a great verse. To talk about these types of people, false disciples. 1 John 2, verse 19. John is talking about people who made a profession of faith but are no longer walking with the Lord. He said, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued or remained with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that none of them were of us. Sounds like a little double talk there. Here's what John is saying. A lot of people have followed Jesus over the years. John said, we've seen many disciples come to Christ saying that they believed in him. But you know how we know that if they were genuine or not? Because the ones that were genuine stayed with Christ. They stayed in the faith. The ones that went out from us proved they were never really of us. Because the mark of genuineness is that people continue in the faith week after week month after month year after year 
Sometimes people will say to me, well, you know, what about so-and-so? I mean, uh, you know, 10 years ago or 20 years ago, I brought them to a crusade, you know, and Billy Graham crusade, they went forward and prayed the prayer, and, and, and I know they're saved now. Well, where are they with the Lord? Oh, well, they stopped going to church about six months after they got saved. But, you know, I know they're saved because they went forward and prayed that prayer. Well, I don't know about you, but my Bible says that they're genuine. They're going to continue with the Lord. And if they're out there after, you know, six months or a year, they're gone back into the world. What makes you think they really have received Christ? See, I don't understand that. And people have that lot. They hit me with this all the time. Well, I know so-and-so is saved. I know my husband is saved. Or I know my, my son or daughter is saved. How do you know that? Because I brought them to a Greg Laurie crusade, you know, 15 years ago. They went forward, you know. And Well, where are they now? Well, they... You know, they're in the world, but I know they're saved. Well, I don't know, man. I hope they're saved, but how could you be saved and live in the world for 15 years and not have that conviction of the Holy Spirit upon you? I mean, I know when I backslide, I mean, the Holy Spirit's all over me with, with conviction. I mean, I can't even rest. I'm so convicted, right? You want to run back to the Lord as fast as you can. 15 years, I got news for you. I'm not so confident in that person's so-called faith. So again, verse 23, Paul said, If indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Well, obviously, Paul is using hyperbole here, indicating that the gospel had spread throughout the known world in a very incredible way. That's true. Uh, he's not saying that every person on the planet heard Paul preach the gospel, though. He's, he's speaking in hyperbole. Sometimes Paul will do that. He did that earlier in verses 5 and 6, where he talked about, you know, the he said, You heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which has come to you, as it has also in all the world. Well, the gospel hadn't gone to every corner of the planet. It had spread throughout the entire known world in an incredible way. And, of course, we know that before this is all over with, before Jesus returns, every person on the planet will have the gospel preached to them. You say, how is that possible? With God, all things are possible. He's going to dispatch an angel at one point, Revelation tells us, who is going to have the everlasting gospel, and he's going to broadcast to every person on the planet. Nobody can say, well, I never, you're not fair, God. I didn't get a chance. Before it's all said and done, everybody is going to hear the gospel. And I'm convinced right now, if somebody has a heart to know God, and how would they have a heart to know God? The creation declares the glory of God, right? So if they look into the creation and say, I don't know who this God is, but I know he's real. And I want to know him more. I don't care if they're in some tribe buried so deep in Africa somewhere that no missionary has ever gotten to this tribe. I've heard stories of how God has sent angels to people who have right hearts because God will not let anyone go to hell who wants to know him. So verse 24 is a little controversial. Let's read it. Paul said, I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church. Now, Paul is not saying that his sufferings are helping to atone for their sins by adding to what Jesus did in the cross. He's not saying that. What did Jesus say from the cross? He said, it is what? It is finished. First of all, how could I possibly add to what Jesus Christ has already paid for? He did it all. Now, I was raised in the Roman Catholic Church. And the Roman Catholic Church teaches that Jesus, you know, he did most of it, but I've got to add my two cents. And I'm sure they'd be furious to hear me 
put it like that. I'm just trying to make it as simple as possible. But, you know, in Roman Catholic theology, they claim that anyone who says they have eternal life is to be anathematized, cursed to the lowest hell. In Roman Catholic theology, not even the Pope can say he has eternal life. Best he can say is, I'm working towards it. And I hope that I've done enough good things. And most Catholics believe uh, they're not going to do enough good things unless your mother Teresa or somebody like that to when you die, you're going to go right to heaven. So, you know, the stuff that you didn't wind up atoning for and paying for on the earth through good works and all, you have to go into purgatory and work it off there. But, you know, 1 John 5, he has given to us everlasting life. We have it, right? We're so blessed that we're not working towards it. He's already paid for it and has given it to us. It's a gift. But Paul is not saying that his sufferings are helping to atone for their sins by adding to what Jesus did in the cross. The Greek word for afflictions there, verse 24, the afflictions of Christ. I, uh, you know, I fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. The Greek word is thalipsis, and it's a word that's never used of Christ's sufferings on the cross. It's always used of trials and tribulations. As somebody has put it, the pressures of life as they are attached to the endurance of faith. It's always talking about the struggles we go through right here in this life. Paul says in this verse that his sufferings have become a real source of joy for him. Why? Because God has used them for him to be able then to reach many people with the gospel. And Paul is identifying with Jesus in his sufferings that through them Paul might be used to continue the work that Jesus began. Listen to that. Paul saw himself as continuing to fulfill the work that Jesus began. Do you realize that you are continuing the work that Jesus Christ began? My verse for that is Acts chapter 1, verse 1. What did Luke say, who wrote the book of Acts? He said, the former account I made, O Theophilus. Theophilus was probably his master. Luke was a physician. Most wealthy people owned their own physicians back then. As I've said many times, now the physicians own the rest of us. But back then, if you're a wealthy guy, you had your own personal physician. And Paul, Luke said, the former account I made to you, O Theophilus. What was the former writing that Luke made before the book of Acts? The gospel according to Luke, right? Listen, the former account I made of Theophilus, of all that Jesus, listen, began both to do and teach. Jesus began the work. His church is now completing, in a sense, what he began. He's in us through his spirit. He's directing us. He's empowering us to do the work. It's not, we're not doing it on our own strength. But we are, we are not doing our thing. We are doing his work. That's what... The Christian life is all about. He is the master, I am the slave. And wherever he sends me, I go. Whatever he wants me to do, I do. He's not my servant, I'm his slave. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 12, Paul said, But I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. Paul saw his sufferings as God using them to give him new opportunities to preach the gospel. Paul was in prison in Rome when he said that. Paul was basically saying, if it wasn't for the fact that I've been wrongly accused and persecuted and dumped into a Roman prison, I wouldn't have a chance to witness to these Roman guards and, and all the other prisoners. Paul saw his life as being an instrument for God wherever he was. It was God's way of giving him new opportunities to preach the gospel. He said in verse 25, 
Of each I became a minister according to the stewardship from God which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. Of which I became a minister, a servant, according to the stewardship from God which was given to me for you. The word steward is what you are. Stewardship is what you've been given to do. A steward is basically a servant that has been put in charge of another man's household. You can read Genesis 39, how Joseph was Potiphar's steward. Potiphar was gone a lot as an officer of Pharaoh. And Joseph stayed back and he managed the household, made sure that supplies were bought, servants were fed, and so on. He didn't own any of Potiphar's stuff. He was placed over it as a steward. And Paul is saying, God has placed not only me, Paul said, but earlier in 1 Corinthians 4, he said, God has made all of us as his children stewards. We are stewards of the household of God. You've been listening to Day by Day, the verse-by-verse Bible teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel in Elk Grove Village, Illinois, with Pastor Phil Ballmeyer. Today's message, as well as many other studies, can be heard and downloaded free of charge from our website at daybydayradio.org. From our website, you can contact us, order resources, read Pastor Phil's blog, and also subscribe to our daily podcast. We hope you'll pay us a visit. And remember to join us for Day by Day, Monday through Friday, here on this station. Thanks again for being with us, and please join us again next time as we continue to study God's Word. Until then, may the Lord richly bless you and guide your steps as you walk with Him day by day.